The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to them, 4.16. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us For this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. If you would pray with me. God, our Master and our Father, the one who loves our souls and has chosen his people before the foundations of the earth in love, who saved us by grace, who brought us to yourself through your Son's death on a cross, Would you be faithful once again to your name this morning by sending your spirit to awaken our hearts to your word and to your truth and to your gospel? Would you give us a rock to stand on this next year in 2015? Would you give us gospel truth to hang on to, ballast in our boat as the storms of life rock us? Father, you are the only one who knows hearts and the only one who changes them. Would you do this for your people this morning? Would you help us to know you and love you? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, this Sunday being the last Sunday of the year, a lot of times churches will do uh, a sermon that's appropriate for a new year. Um, And as difficult sometimes as I find that to to stomach, it, it it probably is quite appropriate for us. It's a time where we've been surrounded by family. It's a time where we've had time off of work or time out of school. And we have a time to think about what our life has been like this year and, and where we're going next year. And truly, as we look back on this past year, each of us has had storms and each of us has had blessings this past year that we would never have looked forward to. We never would have predicted if we had done so this time last year. So I want to take half an hour this morning to to think about this next year of life and what it is that as Christians or as people coming seeking out what truth God might have for us, what is it that he would have us hold on to when the storms of life come? Whether that's a sickness that you don't know is coming or a death in the family or a job that doesn't work out, whatever it is that you've experienced In the past 20 or 30 or 60 years, we don't know what's coming this next year, 
but God has given us eternal, eternal truth to hang on to. So uh, I want to look at this passage in particular because New Year's is a good time for an ultimate text. It's a good time to take a text of scripture that has an ultimate truth in it, that, that's, that's one of the foundation stones of reality, that's something that's bigger than what we think about most every day. New Year's is a good time to take one of those truths that's bigger than our comprehension and to set it before ourselves and to look at it from different angles and try and see how God would use that to shape our hearts this next year. And one of the reasons that I chose this text in particular, what I just read, was that it, it doesn't just talk about this life in our mortal bodies, in our corrupted and perishable and decaying bodies. And it doesn't just talk about our life in the next life. It doesn't just talk about what heaven will be like, what the new earth will be like, what it will be like to be with God. It talks about both of these things and ties them together in a way that we can't think about one without the other one weighing on that. So it has a lot to say about both what we're hoping for and what that hope says about us now. So this text is one of the many texts in Paul's that you could categorize as an, as an exhortation. An, an exhortation is a, a verbal urging or a strong encouragement from one person to another, from one person to a group of people. It's an urging towards a clearly defined yet often a lofty goal or a lofty ideal or a concept. So this is Paul's exhortation to us as Christians to not lose heart. So the the question that we need to ask first is why do we need exhortation? why, Why do you and I need to be encouraged and urged not to lose heart? Well, the first easy answer is that there's a lot of things in life that cause us to lose heart, that cause us to be discouraged, that cause us to despair. Whether we want to look it in the eye or not, there's many moments in life in day-to-day life, where we either want to avoid what's just happened or we really don't know where our next step is going to be. And and sometimes in seasons of life, those are little things. And sometimes you're living in a six-year season of life where you really don't know what you're going to do next. You don't know how your marriage is going to survive. You don't know where the next dollar is going to come from. So we need to be encouraged not to lose heart because life is hard, but also because perseverance, continuing, being steadfast is a necessary part of the Christian life. There is no Christian life that leads to God that does not persevere, that does not stand strong, that does not persevere until the end. So here are just five texts that I'm going to read quickly, and you can jot the reference down. I wouldn't say flip to them quickly because I'm just going to read through them. These are five texts from the New Testament that talk about why perseverance is one of the most important parts of the Christian life. Hebrews 3, 6, the writer of the Hebrews says, and we are his house, we are God's household, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. He says eight verses later in 3, 14, for we have come to share in Christ, we have come to share Christ, we do share in Christ, if we hold our original confidence firm until the end. 1 Corinthians 15, the letter before what we're focusing on this morning, 15 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are now being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hebrews 2.1 Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And Paul in Colossians 1, 22 and 23 says this about Christ. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So these five passages point out the truth that could take five months to mine the depths of that the validity of your faith, the truthfulness of your faith, the content of your faith, whether it is true faith or vain faith, is whether you hold it steadfast and stable until the end. And and we all know that these things that we clutch to, there are many times when our fingers start to come loose from what we're holding on to. And therefore, Paul exhorts us, Paul encourages us, Paul gives us something to hang on to for hope in this next year and in the years to come daily. So here's the thesis. Here's, here's the point. So, so there's, there's two ways to kind of get at this. You can say this up front, right? I can give you a, a truth, and then I can go a couple, you know, I can prove it three different ways. I can give you three proofs, or I can do the opposite, right? I can say three things and then combine them and give you the main point. So this morning I'm going to give you the main point so that you can hold that in your mind and test that main point from what comes next in this passage. So here, here's, our, here's our thesis this morning. Here's what we need to hear and know and live by and absorb into the daily fabric of our thinking in our lives. This is Paul's point, we can stand firm, we can stand firm, and we cannot lose heart because our afflictions are momentary and light compared to the glory of the inheritance that God has guaranteed his people. Our troubles now, whether it's disease or sickness or anger or sin, death, discouragement, persecution, whatever it is, it is light compared to what's coming, and it's momentary compared to eternity. So Paul says in uh, verse 17, here's the verse behind that, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we're going to hit that word preparing in the end. That's the question that we have to answer. What does it mean our afflictions are preparing the weight of glory for us? Not the afflictions are preparing us for glory. That's an easy question. That's not what Paul says. Paul says our afflictions, our troubles in this life, the discouragements and the negative things in this life are preparing glory for us. So that's the question that we'll hit at the end. But first, we're going to walk verse by verse through this. Paul says in verse 18, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, are, are temporal, are passing away, are moving in and out. But, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here are the two camps in Paul's thought. Here are the two categories that Paul sees everything in the universe, everything created, eternity past, eternity future, right now. These two categories, Paul sees everything in the world in. And we as Christians need to begin to learn how to see everything in our life in one of these two categories because that's the only way that we can then take what Paul is telling us to do and apply it to our thoughts and our emotions and our relationships. So here, here are the two categories. It's really simple from the text. Seen and unseen, right? Here's what that is not. That is not material versus spiritual. He does not mean that all material things and all material possessions and this earth, because it's material, is bad and, and we need to have just spiritual lives and, and find everything that we want in the spiritual world and it's kind of in the air and it's kind of ethereal. It's not really tangible. That's not what he's saying. He's also not just drawing a line between uh, material and immaterial. So it's not just, it's not just material is bad, immaterial is good. Okay, what, what he's drawing the line between is corruptible, corrupted, and incorruptible. He's drawing the line between what's perishing and passing away and is temporal and and these things that have had a purpose and, and do serve a purpose but have been corrupted by the fall, have been broken by sin. He's saying that's what's seen. We see that every day. That's what's right in front of our eyes. That's what comes first to our mind. The unseen is that which is coming. It's, it's already here in the kingdom of God, but it is not yet fully here. What's coming is imperishable. There will never be corrupted. It will never pass away. It is the inheritance of the people of God. So, so Paul is putting everything in the universe into these two categories. So the seen world is in this passage, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5. This is how he describes the seen world. The tent, which is our earthly home which could be our body or this world or just this category of this existence, which is our earthly home. This is the seen world. In verse 2, he says, it's where we groan. In verse 4, he says, "It's the the seen world is where we are weighed down, where we are burdened. In verse, uh, another way of explaining is, is the seen world is the world of corruption, of decay, of sickness, of disease, of cancer, of death, of murder, of envy, of conflict, and idolatry. So the unseen world in in chapter 5, he describes it like this. The unseen world is a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Right? He says it's our heavenly dwelling where we may not be found naked, where we will be clothed, where what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So Paul's reasoning is we do not lose hope because we see what's unseen. And what's unseen is incomparable to what's seen. So Paul is saying the way that you don't lose hope this next year, the way that you don't lose hope tomorrow or this morning if something terrible has happened in your life, the way that you don't lose hope is by looking and seeking what is not seen, because what's seen will not give you any hope. What's here won't give you any hope. What you can seek out in a day won't give you any hope. 
So he gives us three, three pictures of this. He, he gives us content because he's, he's telling these Corinthians, look, you're going to lose hope in this life. Here's how you don't. You need to look to what's unseen. Okay, so what is unseen? What is the fullness of glory? What is the weight of glory that's being prepared for us? And he gives it to us in chapter 5. So chapter 5, verse 1. We have a home. We have a, a people. We have a dwelling. We have a building which is made by God. It, it's, it's, it's eternal. Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, whether our body is being destroyed by disease or our home is being taken away from us, or the group of people where we found our identity has rejected us, or our nation is going to chaos, or our world is being burned up by fire, if our tent, that is our earthly home, passes away, we have a building made by God, not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. The writer of Hebrews illustrates it this way. For he, talking about Moses, he was looking forward to the city all the way back, in Egypt, the reason that he killed the Egyptian, the, way, the reason that he defended his Hebrew brother, even though he was raised as a prince in Egypt, the reason that he sided with his people and then went out into the desert and was exiled from Egypt from the riches that he knew, he counted being with God more important than the riches of this world because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, Here's something interesting from Paul's thinking. When Paul talks about building of God, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, he doesn't talk about a building anymore. He, he doesn't talk about anything like the Old Testament temple. In, in fact, he talks about what's, what's in this world, what has been him and the writer to the Hebrews. He talks about it as if it's passed away, as if, as if it no longer has its significant because... He talks about God's building in terms of God's people. He talks about the dwelling that's being prepared for us in terms of us as Christians being built together as his people, as his dwelling, as his holy temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, he says, Paul says, you, the Corinthians, are God's field. You are God's building. And in Ephesians 2, he talks about us this way. It's talking about Christ. Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's one quick implication of that. The people of God now is the unfinished building of God that is built in eternity without hands. That the people that sit around you in church are part of your dwelling place for the rest of eternity. And that eternal tie has very present implications for how we look at our fellow Christians, how we treat each other, how we bear with one another. Because one day each of us will be a pure block in God's temple. Second in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 5, Paul says... For in this tent, this, this earthly tent, we groan. Wait, why do we groan? Because we're not satisfied. 
Because we're, we're not, we, we feel like there's, there's something more, there's something missing. We're not, quite, we're not quite getting what we've been made for. So in this tent, we groan, we're not satisfied. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So we will, this is the content number two of the weight of glory, we will put on our heavenly dwelling. We don't have it right now, so we groan, but we're groaning and longing towards putting on this heavenly dwelling where we won't be found lacking. We we will stand before everyone around us and we will stand before a holy God and we won't be lacking. We won't lack anything. We won't be insufficient. We We won't have any shame. We won't be embarrassed We won't have to go around constructing these things in our life that help us to feel better about ourselves. In fact, we'll really forget about ourselves because we will be so full of joy in God that we won't be lacking anything at all. Paul says in Romans this, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He says in Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He says in Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we do not have this heavenly dwelling now. Any gospel, any preacher, any book that tells you that complete satisfaction in this life is possible is contrary to everything in the New Testament, everything in the Bible. We do not have this heavenly dwelling. Now, we groan. The Christian life is a life of groaning, of longing, but full of hope, sure hope that we will put on everything that we've ever felt lacking in. We will put on Christ who was our substitute, who was our full life. He is true life, and we will put him on as our garment, as our heavenly dwelling. Paul elaborates a little bit more in chapter 5, verse 4. And this is still, what is this weight of glory that we need to see and hope towards? He says, for while we are still in this tent, For this whole life until we die or Christ comes back. For while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So here's what he's saying. What we're hoping towards is that we know that everything that is mortal and perishable and corrupted and broken and messed up and, and has its little quirks that, that you can tell it just doesn't work right, whether that's you or someone else or the relationship between those two persons or the church, everything that has a flaw will put on true and eternal and perfect life and we hope towards that not that we would put it on now but that we can bear through what's going on in our life right now because we know that it won't always be that way we know that God has promised us to live with him in a world perfect 
Here's an interesting thing that you can't see at first glance in any of your translations. The word that Paul uses for um, burdened, we are burdened. It's the same word that he uses for the weight of glory. So in 417, he says, for this light momentary affliction, life, is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Same word as we are burdened. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospels talking about um, the, the burden of life is too hard on them. So here's what I would suggest Paul's doing here. He's using the same word and he didn't have to. There's a much more, um, there's a much better uh, word for burden that's used much more often in the New Testament. And here's why I think he uses burden in both of these verses. In this life, we are burdened. Our afflictions weigh us down. They, they discourage us. They're, they're not a positive thing. They, they hurt. And we carry scars from them our whole life from the age of three on. But in Christ... His burden is light. In Christ, he takes the burden that we feel in this life and transforms it into something worth so much incomparably more that he has taken our burden. And Paul uses the same word to say, these burdens, these afflictions are preparing for you a burden of glory, a a burden that Christ has carried, a a weight that, that has that redeems everything about the burns that you're living through right now. So so Paul has these two worlds in mind, even in the way that he uses this word, baros. He's saying, your burdens now, you don't have to lose heart because your burden in glory is incomparably greater and you don't have to carry it. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, and I think it's worth reading this whole passage to you. 15, verse 51. It's eight verses. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which is a euphemism for die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because death has no sting, Because when you believe that at death, this perishable body puts on the imperishable, if you believe that and you are in Christ through faith, death has no power over us. 
Death has no sting. There's no fear in death. There's no, there's no punishment in death for us. And if death has no power over us, what power does cancer have over us? What, what power does losing our job have over us if the God that we hope in has made death his servant? So Paul says this, because of that, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, na- your labor is not in vain. So Paul gives us three stones, three facets to see and and look at and stare at and continue to come back to, to hope for this weight of glory. But we still need to answer the question, what does it mean that our afflictions are preparing this weight of glory for us? So here's my attempt at that. The weight of glory, when we are with the Lord, will only be inherited by those who find their utmost joy in God. Heaven will not be inhabited by those people who want to be disease-free more than they want God. Heaven will not be inhabited by anyone who wants to be in heaven for any of God's blessings more than they want to be in heaven to be with God. Heaven is a place for the people that God has given his spirit to enable them to see him as their source of joy. So the fullness of God's glory is found where the fullness of the joy of God's people is found. God's glory is most full where God's people love him and are satisfied in him the most. So here's what our afflictions are doing. They're taking our joy out of this world and putting it in the next. That our suffering is from God for our good. That sin is the sin that entered this world and screwed everything up for us ultimately serves God's glory because we look at this world now and we look at our afflictions now and we realize this isn't what I want. This doesn't satisfy me. I have to find my hope in what's coming next. The joy that we will have in heaven is inseparable from God's eternal plan to bring himself the most glory. So how does that help us in 2015? How does Paul saying, count this world loss and count Christ's kingdom gain, like he does in Philippians, how does that help us in 2015? Three things. One I've already said. Suffering is from God for our good. Suffering is from God for our joy. There is no agent or creature or power in this universe that causes us suffering that is not ultimately accountable to our sovereign God. God does not cause pain because he's vindictive or because he's angry at you. 
God does not cause pain because he's an evil God. God allows pain and suffering in this world because he knows that if he doesn't rip your joy from this world, you won't have it in the next and you won't be there. So suffering is for our joy. In order to stand firm in 2015, our inner self must be renewed daily by looking to and hoping for the things that are seen. And that's one of these applications that is the most intangible application I can give you. You're not going to go to someone else and do something for them and and get some good righteousness from doing something good to them. You're going to have to fight in every day and every moment that your thoughts are turning towards God. I know this world is enough. Help me to not be so discouraged or anxious or frustrated or disappointed or angry at my, my friends and my family. I know that your kingdom is coming and, and that's where my satisfaction is and I can wait. I can bear with others. I can love others. The third implication is this foundational ultimate truth that is so big we have to digest it every day of our lives so that we can begin to live it out in every situation. God's glory is tied to our joy. So his spirit will turn our joy, even in this life, from the temporary to God himself. That's from verse 5 of chapter 5, and that's where we're going to end. As Jamin comes up, I'll I'll read that and, and finish. Paul ends this section and he says, He who has prepared us, God who has prepared us, the one who has prepared us for this very thing. This very thing is from verse 4, so I'll read it, inserting that. He who has prepared us for the mortal to be swallowed up by what is life is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. What Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ through faith, he has given you his spirit. And God is faithful to take you and turn your joy from this world to the next. That's not a static transition. That is an active transition where we live out what God is doing in us through his spirit. But when we are living that out and we are frustrated because that's not happening like we think it should, it's not happening as quickly as we think it should, the Spirit working in us, just that working is a guarantee for us. There's no reason to despair when you're not being sanctified and made holy quickly enough. God's Spirit doing that in you is His guarantee that you will be with Him and you will find satisfaction with Him. So, in this next year, may we be a people through every church, no matter where you attend or where you will attend, would we be a people who looks to what is unseen and eternal and ultimate and leaves behind all the things that we hang on to here as our joy? We pray for us, and then Jamin will uh, give us some time to meditate on that. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. 
Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.